0: Hello, I'm Mark Dury, and I'm delighted to be able to spend some time with you in these sessions, uh, which will be focused on how to find freedom from Islam uh, through the cross of Christ, through the work of Christ. I'm an Anglican minister based in Melbourne, in Australia, and I've been in pastoral ministry, uh, working in, in local churches for about 10 years. Before that, I was an academic, and my expertise was linguistics and. Uh, when I was doing my PhD uh, many years ago, I, I spent a time living amongst the people of Aceh in Indonesia and that's when I first gained an interest in Islam because the people of Aceh feel very strongly about their Islamic identity and I learned a lot about Islam as I was living among them. But in the last 10 years, I've been focusing on how to equip the church to find freedom in, in the face of the challenge of Islam. I also bring to the study of Islam an interest in spiritual warfare. What are the dynamics of spiritual freedom? Not just coming out of Islam, but coming out of lots of different backgrounds, people from Satanism or witchcraft or, or other sorts of spiritual uh, training or formation that they've had. How can you make a break with the past and uh, be free from fear, be free from the agreements that you've made as part of your previous spiritual heritage? Very much at the center of these, these presentations will be the identity of Muhammad and how he lived his life, and also uh, the identity of Jesus, and and how he lived his life, and what he did. And a theme that will run through all of the sessions will be how to respond to experiences of rejection. It's very remarkable that Jesus and Muhammad, the founders of the two largest religions of the world, are both uh, reported to have had a lot of rejection in their lives, very severe experiences of being rejected by other people. This commenced in the circumstances of their birth and their infancy and the way they grew up. It included their dealings with their family members and also with religious authorities. Both were accused of being insane or controlled by evil forces. Both were mocked and reviled by others who should have been their friends. Both suffered betrayal and both were suffered from threats to their lives. However, the remarkable similarities between Jesus and Muhammad are overshadowed or or balanced by a completely uh, profound difference in the way they responded to this rejection. And that impacted the two faiths very deeply. Muhammad's life story shows uh, the full range of negative responses that humanity often shows uh, to rejection, including self-rejection and self-validation and aggression. And he took out, in a way, his rejection on other people, and Islam was shaped by that. On the other hand, the life of Jesus went in a completely opposite direction, and that's our key, our key to freedom. Jesus overcame rejection not by imposing it on others, but by embracing it. And uh, according to the Christian faith, he, by embracing rejection on the cross, he overcame it and uh, was able to show the power of God and also heal the pain of rejection for himself and indeed for all of us. If the life of Muhammad contains keys to understanding the imprisoning legacy of Islam, and the life of Christ also gives us the f- keys to freedom, to set us free uh, from the claims of Islam. And that's what, what I'm interested in doing in, in these presentations, providing you with practical resources to help set people free from rejection, from fear, and from the claims that come from the faith of Islam. Before I get into the subject of this lecture, which is uh, to do with the w- spiritual warfare and the kingdom of God, I'd like to make a few observations about Muhammad and the cross of Christ. And it's very noteworthy that Muhammad, uh, we hear, hated crosses. He just had a passionate hatred of the cross. A tradition that's reported by al waqidi said that if ever Muhammad found an object in his house, or indeed anywhere, with the mark of a cross on it, he would destroy the object completely. His hatred of the cross also extended to his teaching about what happened when Isa, or Jesus, would return to the earth. There's a tradition uh, that comes to us from from, uh, the Sahih al-Bukhari that when Isa, or the the Islamic Jesus, returns, he'll go on a cross-destroying mission. Abu Huraira narrated, he said, Allah's apostle, that is Muhammad said, by him in whose hands my soul is, surely Isa the son of Mary, will soon descend among you and will judge mankind justly and he will break the cross and kill pigs and there'll be no jizya. I'll explain about jizya later in the lectures. So when Jesus returns, according to Muhammad, he will destroy the cross. That is, he will destroy the meaning and the symbolism and the power of the cross. Of course, that's not true. (laughs) In fact, the cross is the key to destroying the power of Muhammad and his message of rejection. But today, Muhammad's followers show a lot of uh, animosity or enmity, hatred of the cross, and we see it in many incidences all over the world. i just mention some of the ones that I've been collecting, some of the reports that I've read. In Pakistan, two days before Christmas in 1998, a Catholic church in Faisalabad had its crucifix pulled down by a local Muslim leader. In 2004, an Albanian mob atap- attacked and desecrated the church of St. Andrew in Kosovo. And photographs that were taken and shown on the media portray Muslims who were climbing up onto the roof, risking their lives in order to break off the metal crosses attached to the roof. And there have been many instances also of Muslim mobs smashing crosses, specifically the crosses in Christian graveyards across Kosovo. In Baghdad in 2007, Muslim militants instructed Christians to remove all visible crosses from their churches, and they issued a fatwa forbidding Christians from wearing crosses. When Hamas took control of Gaza in 2007, there was a cross-destroying rampage. There was a convent there, the Rosary Sisters, and a school in Gaza. They were ransacked and looted by masked men, and all the crosses were targeted for destruction. A Christian resident had his cross torn from his neck, and someone said, that is forbidden. In 2007, uh, the Malaysian parliament... Uh, Saw uh, uh, one of the leaders there, Tuan Shed Hud bin Shed Edros, complain about what he said the display of called the display of religious symbols in front of church schools. He said, I, as a responsible person to my religion, race, and country, I state my view that these crosses need to be destroyed. In November 2004, to move to England, uh, the Belmarsh prison was reported to have plans to spend £1.6 million on a mosque. And the facility, in fact, already had a multi-denominational chapel, but Muslims refused to use it um, because the chapel contained crosses which which were covered up when the Muslims prayed. Another incident from uh, England was a trainee traffic warden who complained about the wearing of the British crown on his uniform because it had a tiny half a centimetre cross on it he brought an employment complaint against the Metropolitan Police for what he called racial discrimination. Although he later withdrew the claim, the police authorities offered a dispensation to those who refused to wear the the British crown on their uniform because of the cross. And even the former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, when his plane happened to make a forced stop in Saudi Arabia in 1995, he was instructed, indeed commanded, to take off his cross. David Skidmore in the Episcopal News Service said that Carey's flight out of Cairo for Sudan was forced to make a stop in Saudi Arabia. On the approach to the Red Sea City coastal city of, of the Red Sea coastal city of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, Carey was told to remove all religious insignia, specifically including his clerical collar and his cross that every Anglican bishop wears. So Muslims don't like the cross. Why? Because Muhammad didn't like the cross. But the cross is the key to the response that we need to make to Islam to find freedom. And we'll be explaining and developing this theme through the rest of these lectures. Now the question is how to apply freedom, how to find freedom. I'd like to take you to the book of Daniel and a prophetic text. This is from Daniel chapter 8. And uh, it's a vision of the future. And uh, we're from chapter 8, verse 9. It's uh, speaking about um, a a goat that becomes great, and a large horn is broken off, and four horns grew up, which are generally thought to be the kingdoms that arose after Alexander the Great. And then it says, Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled upon them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of the sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So this is an image of a a very arrogant power, that is is rising up and overthrowing God's holy people and is very successful, very successful, prospering in everything that it does. And it destroys truth. Truth is trampled on. So it's based on deception. And then later in the book, in the same chapter, chapter 8 of Daniel, verse 23, there's the explanation of this particular part of the vision. In the latter part of their reign, that is, after these kings, the end of the the kingdoms that followed on from Alexandria, when rebels have become completely wicked, so there's a breakdown of order, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. So, extraordinary success. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. So there you are, deception is his hallmark. And he will consider himself superior. He will regard himself and his people to be superior to others. And when they feel secure, when the saints feel secure, it says, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. He will oppose Christ himself. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. I believe this is a prophetic anticipation of Muhammad, the stern-faced king who rules by deceit and causes extraordinary destruction and is amazingly successful. That is, in fact, the history of Islam, and we'll be speaking about that more later. But the most important thing that I want to draw your attention to is that he will be destroyed, but not by human power. You can't overcome a spiritual force just by human resources. You need spiritual resources. So that's why I'm going to be taking you to the heart of the matter, which is uh, the victory that Christ has won on the cross and how this sets us free from the claims of Islam, from the trampling on truth, from the false claims of superiority and dominance and even of death and destruction that's waged upon the saints. I'd like to speak first, before uh, going into some of the principles of spiritual warfare that we find in Christ's own ministry, in his ministry of deliverance, I'd like to speak about the worldview issues and, and what kind of world that we live in, because that's very important. How do you place yourself in the world? What, how do you understand the world around you? Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, tells them that he's praying for them. And the way he prays for them is this. This is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I pray that you will be grateful to God for letting you have a part in what he's promised his people in the kingdom of light. God rescued us from the dark power of Satan and brought us into the kingdom of his his dear Son, who forgives our sins and sets us free. That was very much at the heart of Paul's sense of mission, that he was called to rescue people from the power of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of Christ. He saw himself, Paul, in his mission as someone who was commissioned by Christ himself to rescue other people from the power of Satan. And that is, in, 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 in reality, the nature of the work of the gospel, is to liberate people. In fact, Paul, in Acts 27, is recounting his, his, uh, his amazing conversion and also the commission that was given to him. The Lord says to Paul, as he reports in Acts in verse 16 of Acts chapter 26, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I'll show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them, that is, to the Gentiles. This includes, of course, the people of Islam today, because they are part of the Gentiles, you might say. But as Paul is told, you you are being called to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul's mission was to transfer people from the dark power of Satan, as as he said in his letter in Colossians, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his beloved Son, who forgives us and sets us free. Now, in Paul's view, human beings by nature are under the power of Satan and his demonic forces, who are his servants in this world. But by faith in Christ, we find freedom from these powers and these claims over us. J.H. Holden, who was a scholar in, uh, in England, a fellow of Trinity College, Oxford, wrote an overview of Paul's theological worldview, and he said this, Paul had convictions about man. Not only is man sinfully and willfully alienated from God, he's also under bondage to demonic powers who stalk the universe and use the law not as a means of man's obedience to God, but as an instrument of their tyranny. So people are bound by law, and Satan uses that. And Holden said this alienation from God is common to all mankind. It is neither purely Jewish nor purely Gentile. It is the state of man, of humanity, as a child of Adam. So all humanity is bound under law, under the power of Satan. And there are these powers that stalk the universe, as he says, that affect us. But when Christ comes, he sets us free. And Holden goes on to explain that in Paul's worldview, as we see in the New Testament, human beings need to be rescued from this bondage. He writes, as far as the demonic powers are concerned, man's need is simply deliverance from their control. And the key to this rescue is what Christ has done through his death and resurrection. This achieves a victory over sin and the demonic powers of evil which bind humanity are destroyed. Their power is taken away. We see this in the other writings of the apostles as well in the New Testament, not just Paul. So the apostle John writes in his letter, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So we are children of God, but the world is under the power of Satan, and a transfer, obviously, has taken place. If the whole world is under the power, or the dark power of Satan, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13, then the worldview of Islam, which has imposed untold suffering on communities for centuries, needs to be assessed not only in political or social terms, but also in spiritual terms, as a manifestation of the tyranny of evil, of the power of evil that's affecting humanity. And the question is, what specific resources can we find to be set free from this tyranny, from this power? Now, it's important to acknowledge that Satan is at work in all the world, and so you can see his influence everywhere, even in parts of the church as well. It's not just Islam that is under the power of darkness, but the whole world but we're interested here in these lectures in the specific ways in which people are bound into darkness through Islam. Now, for Christians to gain freedom from the claims of Islam, it's necessary to confront and stand against the power of Satan, who is the the force, really, behind all forms of rejection in this world. According to the Gospels, and according to the letters of the New Testament, Satan has a genuine but limited power and sovereignty over this world. John twelve thirty one says that he's the prince of this world. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he is the god of this age. And in Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is described as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. His kingdom is the dominion of darkness in Colossians 1, 13. In Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And so that makes sense, that makes sense of the call that Jesus gave to Paul on the road to Damascus when he was called to the Gentiles, when the Apostle is told that he will turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This phrase that indicates that people, before being saved by Christ, are under Satan's power, but through Christ they're redeemed and transformed out of the power of darkness into the Kingdom of God, so there's a confrontation, a spiritual confrontation going on between God and Satan. Satan is mounting this uh, cosmic civil rebellion, and there's a conflict between these two kingdoms in which there's no neutral ground that anyone can hide in. You're either in one kingdom or the other. That's the essence of, uh, of the declaration that Jesus gave at the beginning of his ministry that we find in Mark chapter one, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So in this battle and the struggle between the two kingdoms, the call is to enter the kingdom of God and to believe in Christ. Christians then are in an extended campaign of spiritual battle in which the decisive, the decisive battle has already been won by Christ on the cross. And the final outcome is not in doubt. Christ will return and bring all things to their right end. Christ is already and will be victorious but now for us as agents of Jesus Christ as followers of Christ wherever we may be we find ourselves engaged in a daily struggle with the powers of darkness of this dark age and Christ's death and his resurrection provides our authority and our key to victory and freedom it's the basis of our authority to stand against it The contested territory of the battle of the warfare are human beings of human lives, communities, societies, nations, cultures. And the church also can be a battleground as well because you see the struggle between good and evil in there as well. But our focus here is on Islam and a key point of spiritual engagement is to challenge the two great covenants of Islam. Let me introduce those to you. Islam means submission. The word in Arabic means submission. And people are called to submit, but there are two different ways that Islam calls people to submit. One is to submit by becoming a Muslim, to say the Shahada. I believe that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So that's the first great covenant, the covenant of spiritual submission to really Muhammad and the God that he presented in the Quran. To convert to Islam is by saying the shahada. So the shahada, which I will unpack for you in a later lecture, this declaration of faith, is the first covenant that uh, exercises spiritual power. And the second covenant uh, that I'll also be speaking about that exercises power reflects the second form of surrender. The second kind of surrender is not to say, I will be a Muslim, but rather to say, I will live under Islamic law. When uh, Muhammad commanded his followers to spread Islam, he said, give people three options. Firstly, they can say the shahada, they become Muslims. or they could fight if they wish, you'd give them the sword. But the third option is to surrender and live under Islamic rule. And now there is a covenant that determines what it means to have surrendered to Islam uh, uh, politically, and that is to uh, to live under Islamic rule, and that covenant is called the Dhimma Pact. The shahada is just a few words. That's the pact of conversion to Islam. But the pact of surrender is more complicated. It involves uh, a a, a lot of content, and we'll be unpacking that and explaining that. So there's two categories of people that are bound spiritually by the covenants of Islam. There are Muslims who have become Muslims through declaring the Shahada, and they're living under Islamic law. They've agreed to live under that system as believers. But there are also non-Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, Zoroastrians, and others, who at some point have surrendered to Islam and live under Islam politically. So they keep their own religion, but their place is determined by a pact of surrender as well, the covenant of the Dhimma Pact. So we'll be looking today in, in these lectures at the, the Shahara, what it means to be surrendered to Muhammad by his example, and uh, through the Quran and his teaching, and also the Dhimma Pact, what it means to live as, as a conquered community. Now, what does this mean in practical terms? How will these resources be helpful for you? Uh, Well, this teaching and these resources are designed to help bring spiritual freedom to two classes of people. The first are those who used to be under Islam or want to leave Islam and to become followers of Christ. How can they renounce the Shahada? What does it mean to reject that covenant of surrender to Islam through declaring that there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger or his prophet? You have to understand what that means first and then you can understand what it means to renounce it. The second is those people who are, have become intimidated by Islam without converting, who are living under the influence or the control of Islam. And these include uh, the peoples, uh, the Christians and others, who for generations and their ancestors have lived under Islamic rule. And we'll be digging deep to explain uh, the, spiritual, the implications of that surrender and the spiritual implications of having agreed to live under the a pact. But also we're finding even in the West today, in, in societies. Uh, which have not been conquered technically by Islam, you see the spiritual impact of the Dimma pact, the system of, uh, as we'll call it, dimmitude, affecting people. So there'll be also resources uh, provided to ha- explaining how to find freedom uh, from, from that oppressive uh, agreement to surrender to the power of, of Islam. A key text uh, that I'll come back to a number of times is found in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Paul describes the certainty of victory when he writes that the powers of this dark age have been disarmed. That means they've had their weapons taken away from them. The image is a soldier who's armed to the teeth and has every weapon uh, available to destroy you, but then you can take away his weapons so that he's actually toothless and weak. So he says the powers of this dark age have been disarmed, disgraced and defeated through the cross and through the forgiveness of sins. This is the passage, a wonderful passage from Colossians. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code, the law that is oppressing us. He's cancelled that. God has cancelled that because of what Christ has done on the cross. With all its regulations, all the details, we'll work through those regulations. And that law was standing against us, it was opposed to us. And then, then Paul says he took that law, that code, and nailed it to the cross, crucified it. And by doing that, it says he disarmed the powers and authorities, took away, took away all their weapons and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is the image of taking the defeated soldiers with their weapons all taken away from them in a victory march through the streets of Rome. They are powerless, they are humiliated, and their their power is destroyed. We should be serious about the challenge that's involved in this and the deep implications of it. Because the Dhimma Pact and the Shahada at its root, both those covenants are a covenant with death, And, uh, in fact, Paul writes about this in Ephesians 6, that we are, by nature, in the world under under a curse of death. That's a normal part, really, of being without Christ. But, through Christ's work on the cross, we can be set free from those oppressive covenants. So we'll be explaining how to renounce and break the power of the Shahada and how to break the power of the Dhimma pact. Now, what I'd like to do is just to take you now through um, some reflections on Jesus' own uh, ministry of setting people free. And generally, what we see in the ministry of Jesus that his focus was on setting them free from demons. So we're going to focus on his, focus on his deliverance ministry and then I'll come back to some principles involved in setting people free from the, from the covenants that they've made. That'll set the stage for the, for the sessions that will follow. The best place, really, to understand the ministry of being set free from Satan's power is in the Gospels. It's very clear that this task of calling people into freedom was a central part of Jesus' work. This aspect of the ministry of Jesus is reported uh, repeatedly in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In Luke's Gospel, casting a demon out of someone is the first miracle that Jesus does. Here's the passage from Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before all of them and came out without injuring him. Now all the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And it says the news about Jesus spread throughout the surrounding area. That was the first miracle that's reported in Luke's Gospel. And consider the remark that's passed around the stunned crowd. They are marvelling at the power of Jesus and his authority to cast out demons. This is a society that's very used to demons and, and dealing with spiritual oppression. And the authority that Jesus displayed over these spiritual powers was something they were completely shocked by and unaccustomed to. It amazed them. It is amazing the freedom that Jesus brings and the freedom that he brings for us. Now the proclamation of the kingdom of God is the heart of Jesus' message. And this ministry of announcing the kingdom is backed up by Jesus' signs, healing the sick and casting out demons. In fact, Jesus described his ministry of confronting the powers of darkness and driving out demons as a sign of the arrival of the kingdom of God. He said in Luke 11, verse 20, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So these setting people free spiritually from the darkness that had been oppressing him, that demonstrates, according to Jesus, that the kingdom of God has come. So, the coming of the kingdom now for us, among us, means that we will be and are being set free from all the dark claims of this dark age. Now, not only... This is one of the amazing things. Not only was deliverance ministry setting people free from darkness a key part of Jesus' message, but also... Announcing the kingdom was backed up by these acts. He would do what he said. He did it and he said it. He said it and he did it. Now, he also, and this is really, really the exciting thing, he also equipped and trained the 12 disciples to preach, but not just to preach but also to do the deeds of the kingdom. It says in Luke 9 that he endowed them with power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And also Matthew 10, verse 1. As Jesus' ministry develops and progresses further, he involves more and more of his followers in it. So in the next chapter of Luke, chapter 10, Jesus sends out a larger group, 70 people, giving them the same task to teach and to heal and to cast out demons. And on each of these occasions what we see is that Jesus gives his his disciples instructions before they go and afterwards he meets with them and he debriefs with them and they say to him in Luke chapter 10, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So there's a process of training and discussion. And Jesus responds to them to this amazing statement by saying um, that uh, there's a pastoral pastoral key that they need to remember. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So this is a great victory that you've been part of. This is how Satan has been defeated. and You've been part of it. So Jesus has prophetically seen this happening. It was thought of at that time that the heavens were the places of the powers. So Satan has fallen from his superior place. And Jesus said, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's explaining to the disciples that this ministry that they've been engaged in, in setting them, people free, together with their, their healing and their preaching activities, is the defeat of Satan, overthrowing him from his exalted position. And they need to remember that uh, Jesus has been given this authority and he is giving it to them. They're not doing it on their own authority. All authority belongs to him, but he's shared it with them. And they are meant to delight in the fact Uh, that God has rescued them, not just that he's given them this power. So we see this picture in the Gospels of Jesus training his disciples to set people free. That's what we need to do today as a church. We need to train each other to set people free. That's what we're doing in these lectures. That's what this course is about, training you to set people free. And I use the word train very deliberately. We often think of Jesus as a teacher, but he was an equipper. He would show them what to do. He'd do it. He'd tell them what he'd done. He would send them out where he would debrief them at the end, and they were equipped by this. There's a fascinating passage in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 14 and following, uh, where the disciples have been trying to set someone free, but they can't get it. It doesn't work. This, this man has a son oppressed by a deaf and a mute spirit, and he takes the son to the disciples, but they can't, they can't cast the demon out. So the father goes higher up, goes to the boss, and goes to Jesus, and Jesus sets the boy free, and the disciples, they don't know, why hasn't this worked? Because it worked for them before. Why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, only by prayer, or some say by fasting. So Jesus is explaining to them some of the principles involved in the ministry of, of bringing people into freedom, into life. So you see the disciples being trained and, and being equipped. And then at the end, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, what, what is included in everything? The teaching, yes, teaching, teaching the gospel, but also setting people free, setting people free from darkness, casting out demons. Jesus commanded them to do that. He told them how to do it. So this is our job as well, to set people free. That's why we're doing this course, to give you some resources to set people free. Everything includes spiritual warfare. And we see also in the example of the apostles that they kept on doing the job. They'd seen it done, they'd heard it explained, they'd had a go, Jesus had given them feedback, and they keep doing it. And we see it in Paul's ministry in Acts 19. Paul Paul is setting people free in Ephesus. That was a city that was bound in darkness. There were very powerful spiritual cult working there, and uh, worship of the goddess, very powerful there. And and Paul's ministry was so well known and, and so obvious that in fact some Jews began to copy him and they were casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They thought this was pretty good stuff to be able to set people free by the name of Jesus, and that led to some unfortunate results. Um, these, these, these Jewish guys would say, would try and cast out demons by saying, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And there were seven sons of, the, of, of Sceva, a Jewish priest, doing that. But one day, they met an evil spirit who said, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? That's a good question. Who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them, gave them such a beating that all seven of them ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, the people of Ephesus were amazed at the power of God. And they gave glory to God when they heard this story. And they realized that this was God at work. It wasn't just even just saying words. It was Paul having this genuine authority from Jesus. So one of the things I want to do is equip you to have this authority authority to confront the powers of darkness and to call people into light. Also, we see in the early church the continuation of this ministry, setting people free. Many accounts in the early church. In fact, it's reported, uh, we know that in the early church, in that time around the Mediterranean, there were many different gods and uh, people followed these gods. They were devotees. They'd be initiated in, in rituals, to be consecrated to a particular God. And um, sometimes people would become demonically oppressed because of those dedications. The, the other worship of these other gods would cause them to be come under the principles of the, of this. And they would manifest demons. And, and sometimes the demons claim to be the God. So someone would be manifesting a demon, and the demon would speak and say, I'm Dionysius, or I'm Apollo. And uh, Tertullian, a a Christian theologian writing in AD 197, discusses about how these so-called gods, who are actually demons, would oppress people. This is the spiritual legacy of the worship of these gods. And he reports that if a person who's oppressed in this way is brought into the presence of even the simplest Christian, that Christian, just by a word of command, can command the demon to speak and identify itself, and the demon will confess that it's not a god, but in fact a demon. So Tertullian writes, Let a person be brought before your tribunals. And the wicked spirit, bidden to speak by a follower of Christ, will readily make the truthful confession that he is de- a demon, even though previously he's been asserting that he's a god. This is quite important to understand that when you're setting people free from the worship of other gods or false gods, or in fact idols that claim to be gods, they come under an oppression of spiritual powers that are connected to those to that worship. That's the dark age in which we live. And when people become Christians, they are called to be renouncing those allegiances and to come under the kingdom of Christ. Justin Martyr in his dialogue in AD 160 refers to these spiritual powers being subject to Christians by virtue of the name and the cross of Christ. That's the key to the authority that we have. I believe that when Jesus' disciples were casting out demons, they had authority by virtue of the cross that was yet to be revealed. The authority they had from Christ was in fact a down payment on what was going to happen. But we now see the full glory of the cross and we can understand it and we can claim this authority with great conviction. And he said that, Justin Martyr said that the demons are subdued to the name of Jesus and to the dispensation of his suffering, that is to the reality of what Christ has done on the cross. He said, We call him Helper and Redeemer, the power of whose name even the demons do fear. And at this day, when they are exorcised in the name of Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, they are overcome. And thus it is manifest to all that his Father has given him so great power, by virtue of which demons are subdued to his name and to the dispensation of his suffering. And now we do believe in our Lord Jesus, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, when we exorcise all demons and evil spirits and have them subject to us. Athanasius, writing in 320 AD, proposed that the authority of the church to expel demons, that is to confront the spiritual powers in the name of Jesus, is proof that Christ is risen. He says if Christ were dead, he wouldn't expel the demons, for the demons would not obey someone who is dead. It's very interesting that in in many churches today, a part of the baptism ritual involves a rejection of Satan. Even in the Anglican church, even in my own church, this is the case. This derives from the practice in the ancient church of delivering people from all of Satan's power before baptizing them. So before people are baptized, they're asked to confess Christ, but also to renounce evil and Satan and all his works. Part of the covenant of baptism coming under the authority of Christ is not just saying yes to Christ and the forgiveness of sins, it's also saying no to all the, all the other principles and powers. And that's what we'd be speaking about, how to do that effectively. Hippolytus in his Apostolic Traditions in AD 210 describes the rituals of the early church. And he said, when the day of baptism approaches, let the bishop perform exorcism on each one of them so that he may be certain that the baptized is clean. So we need to be set clean by renouncing and being freed from the things of the past. Now, the focus in, this, in these lectures will be on the Shahada and the dhimma these two pacts of surrender, spiritual and political, but also spiritual in a different way as well. And one of the themes that will come up again in different places is that of legal rights. How does Satan bind us? One of the key steps to finding spiritual freedom consists of renouncing all the other claims which Satan might make against us. For example, in the early church, it meant renouncing the worship of these other gods, of saying I will not worship them anymore and refuse to partake in in their rites and rituals. And spiritual commitments that we've made in our past, in in our life, and in fact even ones that past generations have made, can affect us quite deeply. Covenants that we've agreed to, traumas that we've undergone, uh, can be used by Satan to oppress us. Um, A helpful concept is that of a doorway or an entry point or a pathway which Satan can use to oppress us. A foothold, it's sometimes described. Paul refers to the possibility that a Christian could give opportunity to the devil by harboring anger. So he says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. And the Greek word for foothold here is topos. And topos means a place, but it has this particular kind of place. It's an inhabited or occupied place. So giving a place to Satan means giving a place of occupation, a place where Satan has some, has some uh, leverage over you. He's saying that if you hang on to anger rather than confessing and renouncing anger as a sin, you could be surrendering spiritual ground that Satan could use against you. In John 14, 30, Jesus uses the language also of legal rights when he states that Satan has no hold on him. John 14, verse 30, Jesus said, I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Archbishop J.H. Bernard wrote in a commentary on this passage that Jesus is saying, Satan has no point in my personality on which he can fasten. This is a legal, a legal uh, metaphor. So Carton said this, He has no hold on me is an idiomatic rendering of he has nothing in me, which is a Hebrew idiom used in legal context. He has no claim on me. He has nothing over me. That means the devil um, could have a hold on Jesus only if there were a charge that he could make against Jesus, but Jesus was pure and clean of all sin, so there was no claim, no charge that could be made against Jesus. One of our challenges as Christians is to be cleansed so that there will be no charge against us, no claim against us, and that happens through the cross. Of course, it's Jesus' lack of sin. He said, I do exactly what my Father has commanded me so Satan has no claim on me. This is of profound importance for us to understand what happens on the cross, because through Jesus' death on the cross, he establishes, as it were, an umbrella for us to come under his purity and his cleanliness, and we are cleansed, and we become, like Christ, someone that Satan would have no claim over and no rights over us. The death of the Lord's Messiah is an innocent sacrifice for us, not a just penalty that Satan was able to work against Jesus because he'd done anything wrong, but an innocent sacrifice, and because of that, it's effective for us to set us free from sin. Now, when we're claiming spiritual freedom, and this is what we'll be laying out in the rest of the lectures, it's necessary and sensible to identify and close the doorways, to shut down the footholds and get rid of them, close off and renounce the covenants that have been made by repentance and renouncing, by a truth encounter where where you realise the power of the cross to set you free. We will be appealing to Christ as Saviour and understanding the nature of God's forgiveness, being buried with Christ, identified with Him and specifically rejecting all of the charges that Christ might make against us. I'd like to share a, a story with you. I've been taking this message to people around the world, in Australia and South Africa and Korea and different places. And uh, I've experienced a number of times people have, have been really tied up, and bound by fear. And uh, this ministry has enabled them to find wonderful freedom. Let me give you a testimony from a woman who was a Coptic woman, a Christian from the Middle East. She said, I studied the Sharia as a major subject for four years of part of my law degree in Islamic country. I studied in detail the degradation of Christians under Sharia law, including the dimma regulations, this covenant of surrender, but something was blocking my understanding of the personal impact of such teachings on my character. I was a committed Christian and loved the Lord Jesus Christ, but I failed time after time to declare him as my Lord in front of my Muslim friends, lest I hurt their feelings. When I attended a presentation on the dhimma" I felt that my spiritual condition was being brought into the light and deep frustrations in my soul were being exposed. I was remembering many situations where i had happily accepted and even defended the superiority of Muslims in their conquered territory, the land of my ancestors. I became convicted that for many years I had accepted and lived out the degradation of being a dhimmi, of living under the covenant of defeat. I sought prayer and instantly experienced great freedom in Christ. The same night I went back home and called a close Muslim friend. I told her that Jesus Christ loves her and that he died on the cross for her. Since then, my ministry to Muslims has become very effective and I have seen many of them declaring Christ as their Lord and Savior. Indeed, this, uh, this woman has gone on with her husband to plant a whole church and has led many Muslims to Christ and it's a wonderful ministry. But the key was to realize that there was a foothold in her life of fear and this was to do with a covenant of surrender, that them are pact because she and her ancestors had lived under Islam for so many centuries. And we will be bringing these things into the light, applying the truth. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And we'll be explaining how this can work for you and how you can use this as a resource to help people coming out of Islam, renouncing the them pact, and also Christians that have been living under Islam and are intimidated by fear, how they can be set free and be effective and bold witnesses.